I'm competing with all of the nearby school districts for my bandwidth right now. So definitely school is important, uh, including my little remote learners. Shekh Patchway, everybody. Thank you for joining those of you that are joining us live as we're going to uh, go into the show today. Good to go. So again, what's up? I was just saying. Okay. Uh, so again, we're War Cry Podcast, and our theme today is national advocacy and resources. We hear from tribal members a lot about wanting to know who, what's out there, who's out there. Uh, so our intent today is to learn about those resources available regarding uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and people, as well as insight on legislation and efforts from communities and tribes. Again, some of this uh, information can be sensitive and triggering. So if you need to step away or make sure to have additional self-care, we definitely encourage that. So again, welcome to this episode of War Cry Podcast. We are in season two. We are an all native run podcast discussing data, events, stories, issues, and historical connections about Northwest missing and murdered natives. We are located on the Yakima Reservation. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We are live streaming during the noon hour Pacific time. My name is Emily Washings, and co-hosts today are Patsy Whitefoot, Robin Pibashi, and Lucy Smartlowit. Guests today are Paula Julian and Rose Lee Quilt from the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center policy team. I'm going to actually turn it over to our guests to give an introduction of themselves. So take it away. Oh, so excited to be here. Um, truly, Kwathlani, Kwathlani, thank you. Or Rosemary Lee Quilt. Um, good day, every, everybody, uh, my relatives. My Indian name is Lashawat. My English name is Rose Quilt. Um, my mother is Tatwasa um, or Jeanette Lee. Um, father is Dave Buzzard. Um, my maternal grandparents were Mama Tacha or Elizabeth George um, and Martin Hannigan. Um, my paternal grandparents, um, Frank and Mary Buzzard. Um, we always called them uh, Grandma and Grandpa Suli because Suli is the, the uh, Cherokee word for a buzzard. <laughs> so they're out of Oklahoma. Um, and then I was uh, uh, culturally adopted by uh, Bill and Della Cheney out of Kekwan, Alaska. Um, but again, um, good to be here, very honored um, to join you all. Um, I'm zooming in from the traditional homelands of the auction peoples in Arizona. Um, but as the Yakima, my heart is back home <laughs> with all of you. Um, I refer to myself as a nomadic granny um, because I moved to Arizona to, to live and be near and support my four grandchildren who are growing way too fast and are now teenagers. Um, so when they move, I will move. <laughs> uh, but currently I serve as the director of policy and research with the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. Um, I've been here now for nine years. Wow. Everybody, where does the time go? <laughs> um, and I'm, and I'm uh, thankful and standing with all our relatives today for the Day of Truth and Reconciliation, as I, I see many of you wearing orange as well. 
um, and Patsy just shared with us about, you know, the boarding boarding school experience and, um, you know, that impact from back home in, in uh, Yakima. So just, again, joining prayers and, and offering unity um, for our young ancestors who did not survive and um, along with their family. So thank you. Paula? Thank you, Rose. And thank you to Emily and Patsy, Lucy and Robin. Um, for hosting this podcast and have it, inviting NIWRC to join. So my name is Paula Julian. I'm a senior policy specialist for NIWRC. Um, I've been with NIWRC since we started um, in 2011. This year is our, actually today may be, actually today is our 10 year anniversary of serving as the National Indian Resource Center addressing domestic violence and the safety of Native women. So I forgot, uh, I woke up this morning and then um, it's actually perfect that you guys have this podcast for us um, because 10 years ago today, um, our small staff, I think there were not more than five or six of us and then we've, we've doubled and grown in size, um, opened our doors um, to begin to do this work. Uh, many of us, uh, like myself, have been working on violence against women and violence against Native women issues. Um, I, I've been doing this work um, since 1996 with Indian tribes, um, and I've been doing this work since I was a young girl. Um, so I'm Filipina, um, born and raised, first-generation uh, Filipina-American I'm born and raised in San Francisco, California, um, and um, in the Haight-Ashbury district. So I grew up around all the hippies and the immigrants that were living in the Haight-Ashbury then. Um, and um, um, ended up moving to DC in 1995. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, again, I'm Filipina, I live and work from home, which is the La Jolla Indian Reservation in San Diego County, California. It's the land of the Pamkawicham or the people of the West, uh, where I now have my family. Um, and I'm again, just glad to be here with all of you. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much to our guests. Again, National Indigenous Women's Resource Center has a large uh, website with a number of information. I'm gonna turn it to announcements. If we can load the uh, slideshow. So we have an update on uh, the cases that we announced. As you know, we announced uh, missing people uh, that were from the Yakima lands, as well as other people in the state of Washington uh, with their families' uh, request of us. Uh, Retha May Finkbonner was found alive. So again, that's an update to the Washington State Patrol's uh, missing people list. Uh, today, September 30th, is Orange Shirt Day, is a day of awareness for uh, boarding schools for the United States and residential schools in Canada. Um, those are placeholder uh, titles and names. Obviously, there's a lot of different uh, aspects and things that are connected with those, what they call schools, forced assimilation and violence. Um, we do have and have been hearing from the family of Atwai Gabby Petito, and they did make a statement of support, a strong statement of support regarding increased media and search efforts for all families of the missing, including uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women. 
Our co-host Patricia Whitefoot was interviewed for the Today Show. And we also have uh, Little Swans at the Fair. Uh, this photo was taken by a parent of the Little Swans. And you can see two children dressed in red wing dresses along with Patricia Whitefoot in a red wing dress holding a drum with their arms up. Uh, Washington State Fair, just at the Central Washington State Fair, AKA the old Saluskan village. <laughs> Uh, but uh, Patricia, do you want to uh, give a little bit more explanation about this photo? Uh, sure, I will. Thank you. Um, the, of course, our little swan dancers, the Ixix Washington were invited to perform. Uh, we performed on the uh, park stage there uh, near where all the food is. And so uh, this was the, a, a debut for some of the girls because this is the first time some of these young ladies were able to perform with us. And as um, many of you know, we practice with the young girls. We have um, our our leads, Mary Lee Jones and uh, Elder Marlene White, myself who work with the girls along with the parents and, and grandparents and fathers and mothers who work with our children. Uh, basically, we're just sharing them some of those history, social dances, the songs, the drumming about who we are as Yakima women. And so continue this tradition with our people as well. And having learned these songs when I was a child, it's important that our history and culture lives on in the lives of our children. So I wanna thank our parent for sharing the photo with us today. And a note from the NIWRC policy team that if any, Point during this session, you need culturally appropriate advocacy or support, please contact the Strong Hearts Native Helpline at 1-844-7-NATIVE. Again, that's 1-844-762-8483 or chat online at strongheartshelpline.org. Um, I think that is a great lead in as well into our next um, announcement. Uh, slide about uh, National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. Um, again, I'm going to turn it over to Patsy because Patsy walks around with this at so many different presentations that she does and everybody lines up like it's an ice cream truck. That's how uh, popular this item is. Um, take it away, Patsy. <laughs> Thank you. And actually, I have the same magazine right here in front of me because I I carry it with me in my laptop bag. So I also have a copy of this particular magazine. I just wanna say with regard to the Restoration Magazine uh, for our audience that this is a wonderful resource. This is about stories shared by tribal people throughout the country, throughout the United States about you know, the impact that missing and murdered indigenous women issues have on our families, but our families are also speaking out through this magazine and really want to thank the staff from the NIWRC, both Paula Julian and Rose Quilt, who are with us today, you know, about their advocacy work that they do and also the inclusion of listening to the stories and taking time to provide support, but also helping through Congress to make changes. And so it's because of this magazine, you know, that really listens to the voice of the people that, um, that 
the work that's being done and the advancements that are being made, particularly with the Violence Against Women's Act and other related kinds of legislation is important. And so please sign up uh, for the Restoration Magazine. It is free uh, uh, from the Seattle Indian Health Board, which is providing this uh, magazine to us. So you can go to the website and there'll be a, a link in the website. Uh, there's a link somewhere there and it'll say you can sign up for uh, the magazine, but you could also download it as well. If you need any support, please feel free to just email us or, uh, or text us and let us know that you need some support. So uh, there's the download click that Robin is sharing as well. And on this particular page, there'll be a link to this magazine. So a wonderful resource and stories that are being shared. I'm still working on a story about a war cry with our group. And I've also shared personal stories from, from myself as well as my family. And so if you want to be featured, please feel free to contact any one of us and we'll work with the staff on, on that, on your story. Yes, um, Patsy can only carry around so many magazines with her, <laughs> her, her tote. So please register and sign up uh, to receive that great information or you know, go online uh, and read uh, it digitally. Uh, I want to turn over to some of the resources that we saw when we were just clicking around the website. Uh, in particular, you know, one of the uh, toolkits regarding missing people. You know, we at Yakima have over 20 missing uh, Indigenous people. That's out of over 100 in Washington State. And uh, what we're going to do here is we'll go round robin from. Uh, uh, Robin and then myself, Lucy and Patsy and ask you uh, questions. So go take it away, Robin. I just wanna thank you all for being here. Um, I suppose what brought you to uh, this organization in the first place? Like what, what had brought you there? Cause I, hearing you guys have longevity that says a lot about any organization that has people that uh, stay with them for such a long amount of time, meaning that like the work that you do seems to be very fulfilling. Um, I suppose, uh, what is like the reason that you had uh, got into the work? And then a the follow-up would be, is there any particular project that is like near and dear to you that um, you've been a part of? Okay, who's it, Rose? Um, okay, I guess I'll start. So again, thank you, Robin, for that question. Um, when I uh, think about um, how I got into this work and why I've been with NIWRC since the very beginning, um, it really speaks to um, the word responsibility and relations for me. Um, so um, in college, um, I during college, I lost my mother and my partner at that time. Uh, this was in the early 90s. Um, and I really lost my way um, I finished college, I struggled and I finished college um, despite that. Um, and after college, I just started to work for a women's shelter um, in San Francisco. And it was through working with the women and children in shelter, as well as working with the other advocates that I remembered, I was reminded that my life is not just my own, that it's related, I'm related. 
I have connections and I have responsibilities um, to women who have gone before me, women who are living today and the women yet to be born. Um, and I have carried that sense of responsibility um, and relations with me since, since then. So since 1994, um, and then I was recruited to uh, help open the first Violence Against Women Grants Office in DC in 95, uh, after the passage of the first Violence Against Women Act. I stayed um, at, in DC for 11 years, um, working with tribes for a majority of my time there. Um, and then when I moved home here on the La Jolla Indian Reservation, um, I took a break to have a family. Um, and a couple years after that, Tilly Black Bear uh, called me, uh, grandmother of our movement, uh, and said, Paula, you have your family now. It's time for you to come back and help your sisters. And, you know, responsibility and relationships. And when an elder asks you to step forward, you don't say no. Um, and that's for real. And that, that's what's kept me um, with NIWRC and in this work um, for more than half my life. Um, so, Rose? Thank you, Paula. Um, so I guess for me, um, uh, I mean, as a Yakima woman, it's, it's important to for us to advocate um, about the importance, I think, of reclaiming our teachings, traditional teachings about our, our role as, as women. Um, and like Paula said, with that responsibility, I mean, as, as a mom, as a grandma, um, the daughter of, of my mother and of, of Mama Tacha, my grandma. Um, and before we started the podcast, we were talking about the, the longhouse and standing in that line as um, <clears throat> I've, you know, grew up in that line um, and just, um, you know, learning from my elders, um, the elder women with the Wolp Taikish, the songs um, that we'd sing um, for, for all the, the ceremonies that we do at the Longhouse. So, um, you know, just really standing on that strength. We have so much strength and resilience um, that I just, you know, it's, I think we're all in agreement that it's time um, we're at that time, that moment in time to really honor the role of our women and our relatives. Um, I think it's also an honor to be called to this work. It's, uh, it's a very sacred duty and, and I know it's one that we all take um, to heart. Um, <clears throat> I think in many ways, um, you know, maybe I along with so many others that were, we were actually born into this work and so we do carry that responsibility to you know, to take in that knowledge that, that we are handed to from, from our elders, from the grandmothers, our aunties who, who've shared with us, and it's our responsibility to pass on that knowledge um, to, that we've been gifted <clears throat> and to, um, you know, to, to pass that on as well. Um, and I think, uh, you know, how, where this all came from, I think from a a very early age. Um, I, I was shaped by my mom, my grandmother, those elders, um, and all of the issues I think that were impacting our people at the time. I remember sitting at, you know, the, those dinners where we have, you know, they're having long discussions about the importance of our traditional ways, foods, our songs, our treaty and water rights, and the long-standing battle with um, Senator Slade Gordon. <laughs> Ah, we don't want to hear that name, <laughs> but 
I remember growing upset as I heard, you know, his attack on, on our, you know, on our tribal ways and our nation. And so I think at that early age, I, I noticed, you know, I think I felt a flicker, you know, a light, a spark, and I knew I wanted to serve our people. So, um, you know, so by my teenage years, I set my sights on law school, which I eventually did with my four kids in tow. Um, and upon graduating, I, I really had the intention of, of going back to Yakima and serving our people. Um, but life had other plans. And as I've often heard, you know, the work chooses us. <laughs> um, so maybe I, I questioned it at the beginning, but I didn't resist it because I think it just made sense in terms of my own survival and healing um, from the early, you know, violent experiences that I went through and grew up with, and even in my adult years and abusive relationships. So I just know as an indigenous woman, as a Yakima woman, I, I don't want to be another statistic or a number. Um, I don't want that for our children and our grandchildren and the generations to come. So, you know, so working with NIWRC, it just, it was a, a natural alignment. Um, and, um, you know, with this family and with all of you, um, a large family of advocates. And so, um, so I'm thankful. Thank you for that question, Robin. Thank you. And uh, I haven't heard that name in such a long time. My grandma used to call him Snake Gordon. So, yeah. <laughs> so wow, that threw yeah. me back. You know, because I was younger, my my grandmother yeah. um, was Yakima woman, and she went to uh, to be a legal secretary. So she was really um, into law, and especially law and sovereignty by the Yakima Nation. So thank you for just reminding me about all of that. <laughs> Um, yeah, and switching to, you know, the work that you're doing there at the organization and some of the resources, um, for our viewers that don't, haven't heard about uh, National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, haven't been to their conference, Women Are Sacred, um, I just want to give you a little bit of insight into what it feels like to step into this space. Um, I believe my first uh, conference was in Albuquerque, and I just saw a bunch of advocates and women and like tables full of resources and these big images of strength and resiliency and walking with your medicine like they were blown up like over life size and it just gave you a sense of like you know there's so many people around the nation that are working on this and so when you, when you think about National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, you think about people that are able to gather both resources and people uh, to connect to different things. And one of the things that I've wondered is how do we connect these resources that you have available to the people that need them? Um, so I, uh, there's about a thousand different places I could have chosen to go with this, but I did really like a couple of items. Um, I'll start with the missing uh, per person poster, which is a part of a toolkit. And it really, um, you know, given the amount of people that we have missing on the Yakima reservation, we're having to have missing persons flyers completed and done. And sometimes not all the information is on there. And, but, you know, this is down, downloadable through a PDF or a Word document. I tested it out myself yesterday to see if I could do that. Um, we'll provide the link in our uh, show notes, but it has date of birth, age, sex or gender, race, 
eyes, hair, height, weight, what they're wearing, um, and identifying characteristics, and then who they can contact um, for additional information. So being able to have a customizable uh, eight, and a half, um, eight by 11 missing person flyer, um, a template for that to help with Native women that are missing, I think it's an important resource. And I just wonder if you have additional insight about you know, families having to um, needing to take some of this information and having these resources. Um, Emily, that that's such a, um, you know, thank you for, for sharing that resource. Um, you know, we at NIWRC in partnership with um, a group of uh, family advisory group members really um, started this past January in um, looking at a draft um, MMIW reference guide or toolkit. Um, and um, Patricia is, is one of those members. And so, so thank you again um, for, for your incredible leadership. Um, but Patricia, along with several of our other um, family members, um, along with um, our national partners, we have national partners that are also working um, with us on the toolkit. Um, and that includes um, the National Congress of American Indians, um, the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center, the Indian Law Resource Center, um, Strong Hearts Native Helpline, and the um, Alliance of Tribal Coalitions. Um, and Paula, if I forget somebody, please jump in. Um, but, you know, in looking at the toolkit, we really wanted to make something um, accessible to, to families. Unfortunately, um, you know, we, we don't like the fact that we um, have to develop this toolkit, um, but realize, you know, that, that there is um, a crisis that's occurring, um, including in Yakima. Um, and I know, and I have relatives who, who have, um, you know, missing and are murdered relatives. And so Patricia has been, um, you know, very vocal with us in our working group in, um, you know, advising and making recommendations that this is something that we, when we develop it, that we also look to ways in bringing it to the communities so that um, we have sessions or, you know, with the communities about the reference guide and what families need to do and, and have just available at their fingertips um, should, should a relative go missing. Um, <clears throat> so, um, so that, I know that that's one way. Um, Emily, to your question about how do we bring this to, to our um, community, and that's you know through Patricia's suggestion and you know having sessions, you know coming together as, I don't know if it would be a you know some community hall meetings um, that you gather to to discuss you know the toolkit. So, and I don't know um, Paula if you wanted to jump in. Yeah, I did. I did. Thank you, Rose. I, I think as I was listening to Emily and listening to you, Rose, um, I can't help, and I some of the viewers may also be thinking this, I can't help, but just think, and I realized that Gabby Petito's family has, you know, issued a statement of support um, for this, for the War Cry podcast, but I really can't help but think about why do Native families need this toolkit? It's not that they want it, it's not that any of us want it. It's why do they need it? You know, we don't have, there's not a toolkit um, to help um, families of all races. 
um, because all races don't experience missing and murders in the same way that Native women experience it. And then to a step further, uh, their families, all families also don't um, experience what Gabby Petito and her family experienced. So indigenous families overwhelmingly are left to search for their missing and murdered loved ones. So the, the response that we saw with Gabby Petito with law enforcement from what, five states uh, working together to, to search and find her, thank goodness. Um, we don't see that at all um, happen for indigenous women and indigenous persons. What we see is law enforcement repeatedly, no matter where they are in the country, systemically saying the same thing. Well, she's out partying. Oh, she'll be back. Um, you know, discounting the concerns that family members are sharing. So how do we get this toolkit out? We get it out by word of mouth. We get it out through all of our networks. Um, but more importantly, we get it out because indigenous families need it because the systems aren't there for indigenous families. Um, so sorry about that. <laughs> just got really upset just thinking about that. I um, want to have a follow-up question to you about on that regard, since we're fifth gearing it into that. <laughs> let's go. Let's go. Um, frequently around here, families don't get updates on their cases. This has been brought up in numerous conversations from myself and other members of this team. And one of the things that the FBI, who is often in charge of or has co-jurisdiction with their cases is they do not comment to press or publicly about open cases. Yet in uh, the instance you just brought up with Gabby Petito, we saw press conferences. Now we know that the FBI has had press briefings in Spokane and they've had press briefings in Seattle. They have not had a press briefing in the Yakima area for years, I would say almost a decade or longer. Um, it hasn't been in recent times. And so I just wonder if you can comment or give insight about why, why that difference? Why is there a difference when, why do we get a different response as missing and murdered uh, indigenous people than other cases of uh, other, from other ethnicities? Rose? <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a big question. And again, you know, we're, our blood, our blood, you know, is rising that <laughs> our blood is boiling um, at this point in time. But, you know, um, I think, you know, and, and that's why I guess I look forward to our next restoration magazine that that will be um, coming out because uh, we have an article um, in there about, you know, the civil rights of you know, indigenous families who are, you know, facing this exact issue, you know, in terms of lack of, uh, of a, even a response, you know, lack of investigation, lack of any sort of coordinated response in terms of a search or, or anything, you know, the, the US DOJ has a responsibility to investigate, um, you know, but there's a, a pattern as you're, as you're talking about, it's a pattern and practice of inadequately responding to cases of 
MMIW um, based on, you know, what we, what we're saying is discrimination. It's discrimination against um, Native peoples. So, um, you know, an Indigenous women who have been abused, trafficked, abducted, or murdered, um, you know, those families have a legal right. Um, you know, there's, so it's, um, it's just, it, we have to <laughs> continue to light the fire under the government. You know, they, they have a federal trust responsibility to Indian tribes, um, to families of those, you know, um, families who are, who have a missing relative or who have a murdered um, relative. So um, we just have to continue um, in, in the efforts that we're doing to raise this issue um, and you know it's possibly a civil rights you know issue so that discussion is is you know will be starting um, and like the um, conversations with the field that um, Lucy and, and I think some of you were able to join us with regarding MMIW and advocacy around MMIW you know these conversations are something that we really need to have um, and continue to have in order to build um, a response because it's, it's overdue, you know, our families are hurting and, um, you know, so it's, it, it, but it's something that we need to continue to lock arms and, and just really raise up and address. Um, Paula? Yeah, thank you, Rose. And I, I would add um, when, you know, why the differential response, um, the differential response, you can trace back to, the roots of the United States. Um, the, gover the US government um, and uh, government services were never designed to look out for the health and welfare of native peoples and indigenous nations. Um, and native people know that. That's your lived experiences um, from, the, from before the formation, before 1776, you knew what, um, protection by the U.S. meant, um, which is why, for example, some tribes that had, were, were fortunate enough to negotiate treaties um, included a clause called the Bad Men Clause um, in some of the treaties that said that where, where, where bad men, white men, uh, commit acts of abuse and violence against Indians, that the U.S. agrees to be held responsible. We have one case uh, from 2003, um, I think it was settled in 2009, um, but it was the Levita, um, Levita Elk case against the United States. I don't know if, if you folks know about it, but it, it's the only case we have where a tribe, a family was able to hold the US government at least accountable through, this, through civil um, remedies uh, for violence committed against a young woman in their family. Um, and, that, and they had to go that route because the fed, feds decided not to prosecute, which we know all too well factually, the federal prosecution rates are the lowest for these cases. They're, the greatest number of cases that the feds declined to prosecute are cases involving domestic and sexual violence, the majority of which are against native women. Um, and so when we think about the differential treatment, it stems back to the differential treatment of indigenous nations from before the US became a country. Um, the taking of tribal lands, native lands uh, from Hawaii 
to all across the United States to Alaska um, was very much tied to making sure that indigenous peoples were relocated, um, terminated, um, um, sent to boarding schools, assimilated, or attempted to be so. So it's all of those federal policies for which the US has apologized for. Uh, they apologized in 98 to Native Hawaiians and 2009 to American Indians. And most people don't know about these formal apologies that are US law. But what, I, what people always say to me when we talk about these apologies is these are, those apologies are meaningless because the US government continues to fail in, in carrying out their, their legal and moral trust responsibility. Um, so it's, it's a huge answer, but it really stems back to understanding the violence against indigenous women is very much tied to violence against indigenous nations. I woke up one morning, um, I was in New York um, to speak um, with some native sisters on a panel on missing and murdered indigenous women at a United Nations event. And um, I woke up and I was like, and then my, you know, like I have these moments and I'm like, oh my God, I should know this. I've been doing this for more than 20 years. MMIW is MMIN. It's Missing and Murdered Indigenous Nations. It's genocide. Um, it's, it's a genocidal practice, uh, just as the boarding schools were, just as public law 280 is, just like you look at federal laws down the line. And you can see the reflection of the genocide and the colonization um, and why we have all the disparities um, in tribal communities and native communities that we do. Thanks. Uh, Lucy? Robin, did you have something you wanted to say? Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you, um, Paula. That is like the exact basis of why we cover what we do on this podcast because it's, it's all related and it's all connected. And you eloquent, eloquently put it, you know, historical uh, connections are the reason why, you know, we're having these discussions today. People tend to like not know it or ignorant it or they just ignore it. And so thank you so much for succinctly, very like articulately um, pointing out this is exactly why we're doing what we're doing. I would have to agree with that. Um, just coming from being in our communities, I feel like it's really easy for us to be in this bubble where we kind of just feel like, oh, this is just what's normal or this is what's happening. And so when we hear you guys talk about it, like three steps back, you know, at a national level, we also realize that, you know, we're not the only ones that are impacted by this injustice. And um, for you to put that into perspective, as far as like the rates of federal prosecution goes, I'm like, I don't even know how to feel about that right now. Like I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping my head around that for a moment. Um, Patsy, did you have anything you wanted to add really quickly before I go on to the next question? Go, go ahead. Okay. So um, with that history and insight, as advocates, what do you guys think we can do in the community to stay informed of policies that we need to pay attention to? So either whatever policies are, are current or ones that you know we should really have a focus right now. Sure. Um, so one of the there's actual several pieces of legislation that um, that we're that we're looking at, um, and I, I I can talk about VAWA. 
um, and, and I'll leave it to um, Paula to talk about um, FIPSA as a, those two major pieces that are moving. So um, it, as advocates, it, it is really important to pay attention to the Violence Against Women Act. Um, VAWA, as we know, is the, the nation's second federal law um, as of 1994, when it was passed by, um, you know, one of the authors was President Biden. Um, and it's it's important because, you know, in it where the bill is recognizing the violence against Native women um, and that the federal government, again, um, has that responsibility to address, um, and that includes allocating federal resources and funding to tribes in assisting them in safeguarding the lives of Native women. Um, and tribes have continued to receive resources um, since the beginning, you know, back in 1995. Um, with each reauthorization of VAWA in 2000, 2005, and 2013, uh, Native women survivors, advocates, tribes, and organizations have really strengthened um, those different sections of VAWA um, that need to be indigenized, <laughs> right? It's, it's a process of we're decolonizing, but indigenizing. <laughs> um, so for example, in 2000, you know, advocates really came together to secure funding for grassroots um, nonprofit tribal coalitions. So today we have over 19 um, tribal um, coalitions um, throughout the country. And they do have um, you know, their own website. So we can provide that link or share that. Um, and one of them is in Washington State uh, Women's Spirit Coalition led by Dee Coaster. Um, but so, um, so in addition to getting that, that funding for tribal coalitions, um, you know, later in 2003, the native women delegates from coalitions used that funding to travel to New Zealand uh, for an exchange with our Maori sisters um, to see how our Maori sisters really organize themselves in response to violence against Maori women. So that, um, that exchange was really powerful um, because then our tribal coalition sisters who traveled to New Zealand and had that exchange with, with our Maori sisters, they were really inspired by that exchange um, and used that to um, you know, move forward and partner with uh, the National Congress of American Indians or NCAI um, to really look at how they can impact and make those social changes, um, you know, in response to like laws and policies that need to be looked at and changed. Um, and so in one of the, the ways in which our coalitions and advocates really stepped up was, you know, with the, um, in our 2005 reauthorization of VAWA which um, title, that's, that's where Title IX, um, they, they breathe life into Title IX, um, which is the safety of Native women. So um, in that, um, there are, in, in, the, in the Title IX, VAWA 2005, there are six important findings um, and three purposes, again, that the you know, advocates really should, um, when you have time to take a look at, uh, the first four findings in VAWA refer to, you know, critical findings, statistics, um, you know, from federal reports regarding sexual assault, rape, domestic violence, and homicide um, among Native women. Um, and these six congressional um, findings really stand as a strong national statement of the longstanding violence um, really endangering the lives of Native women. 
So those are really, really important. Um, and it also further provided the justification for the actual creation of Title IX. Um, finding five um, asserted that tribes require additional criminal jurisdiction um, and the um, you know resources for, for Native women. And uh, we really wanna hone in too with finding six um, because finding six acknowledges that the US has that federal trust responsibility to assist tribal governments in safeguarding the lives of Indian women. Again, we stress that because it's it's not the, the government telling tribes what to do, but it's assisting. So it's providing resources um, that tribes need so that tribes can then turn around and provide culturally appropriate you know, programs for for our native women um, and for for the healing and, and other services that our native women and families so desperately need. So we know that there's a there's a need that remains outstanding. So again, that's part of you know the advocates and the grassroots movement is to keep um, you know testifying and providing testimony um, during tribal consultation about the resources um, that there's just not enough. <laughs> so. Um, so, you know, so really, really important. Um, and then finally, in terms of the purposes of the title, um, the purposes are important because, you know, again, it's it's Congress showing that, um, you know, <clears throat> they need to strengthen the capacity of Indian tribes to exercise their sovereign authority. Again, this is inherent. It's not given. <laughs> that was a big fight for VAWA 2013. Um, I think we we all understand here, um, you know, everybody on this podcast that um, tribes have the inherent sovereign authority. So it's it's not given to us by the federal government, by the state government. We've always had it. So um, so that's always important, and that was a, a huge lift for the VAWA 2013 fight, um, and um, for also for the purposes to ensure that perpetrators um, are held accountable. For their criminal behavior. So again, we see uh, so many um, perpetrators that um, travel to tribal lands because they know they can get away with, with um, crimes um, committed against Native women. Um, you know, one, one in um, uh, Diane Millich is, is a person that I, that I think of that, that she was married to a non-Native man um, and he attempted to kill her um, on, you know, on her reservation. And, um, you know, so again, it's, it's these non-Indian perpetrators, um, and, you know, and other perpetrators that travel onto tribal lands to commit crimes because they know they can get away with it. So in VAWA, um, in terms of the reauthorization that we're looking at going forward, um, is, you know, um, the enhancing, it's enhancing these, um, making sure that tribes would also have um, jurisdiction over cases like child abuse, sexual assault, stalking, and, and sex trafficking. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a big um, push and where VAWA currently stands now, um, the House passed um, HR 1620 or 1620, um, the reauthorization of VAWA. Um, VAWA actually expired in, um, or it was last reauthorized, sorry, in 2013 and expired in 2018, um, but was reintroduced. So 
Um, so again, the bill aims to you know build on the historical victories that we had in 2013 VAWA um, and to affirm again that inherent sovereign authority of Indian tribes and in holding non-Indian perpetrators accountable. Um, as of September, um, the Senate has yet to um, introduce its own VAWA bill, um, but they're possibly looking at October. So, um, so we're we're just we're we're waiting for that language to to come down as they they haven't made it available yet. So, um, so that's kind of where where we stand in terms of uh, VAWA. Paula, did you want to talk about FIPSA? Okay, can you hear me now? Oh yeah. Okay, so there are two federal laws um, that address violence against women. One was passed in 1984, the Family Violence Prevention and Services Act, or FIBSA. Um, and the second was passed 10 years later, 1994, the Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA. Um, and both of those bills, both of those laws have expired. Um, not to say that there's not still law, they still are. What's expired is the authorization for the money that's tied to both of those laws. That's what's expired. So the laws themselves continue to be the law of the US, um, but it's the, it's the dollar, it's the money that has expired in terms of authorization. Despite the expired authorizations, Congress, because of the loud outcry and voices of survivors, have actually increased the money in FIBSA. Um, since it expired. So FIBSA was last reauthorized in 2010. It expired in 2015. And from 2017 to today, we have seen over $20 million additional uh, that Congress has set aside for tribes. Um, that's unprecedented. We've never seen that in the history of FIBSA since, 19, since passage in 1984. And that's very much tied to voices like all of yours that speak out about the injustice happening locally and say that you need resources, you need authority, um, you need the, the federal government and state governments to respect your right uh, to develop tribal specific responses to violence against women. Um, and so both of those laws, again, we have two bills in the Senate and the House on FIBSA that have been introduced. Uh, please go to our website um, to get the bill numbers, um, please reach out to as many um, members of Congress as you can, particularly Republican members, um, just to be frank. It's really been since 20, 2010, since after 2010, that we began to see a more partisan response to violence against women. Up until 2010, um, we had bipartisan support, no, no question. Um, but once we really started to dig deep and really look at uh, uh, reforms that were really meaningful for tribes and native women, then we began, we began to see uh, really more of a Republican pushback on some of the reforms. Um, FIBSA is dedicated funding for shelter and supportive services. Um, and when we, when we know what the stats are, um, that native women experience the highest rates of domestic and sexual violence, yet across the country, there are less, less than 60 native women's shelters um, and less than 300 tribal programs like that's unacceptable. Like what's wrong with that picture? Uh, we have the highest rates, but we have 60 shelters and less than 300 programs. 
Um, and so they, you know, we, we need everyone's help to reach out again to lawmakers, but particularly Republican lawmakers to say, get this done, get this over the finish line, pass FIBSA and BAWA with the tribal enhancements that are there um, because Native women need it. They don't need it in 10 years, they need it now. Trying to get back here. Uh, thank you, Rose and Paula for, you know, just everything that you've shared. And as you were sharing, I couldn't help but think about the voices from the families and suggestions that you have for messaging should family members want to uh, write a letter uh, to Congress or write a letter to you, what are some key message points that families should really be uh, sharing with you so that they could also begin using their voices as well about their own personal experiences and issues that they're facing today? Sorry. Um, I think key messages, Patsy, would really be uh, for families to share their stories. Those are the most impactful. We can talk statistics until we're, until we're blue in the face. But at the end of the day, what uh, pushes things over the finish line are those stories. And that's what happened back in 2013 was the stories, Diane Millich, Billy Joe, um, Lisa Bruner, um, Deb Parker, individual native women stepping forward saying, if the laws were different, if my tribe had the resources, this would not have happened to me. Um, and so one, families, you know, have to share their stories um, and, you know, share their stories in terms of, you know, how, they, how they've been impacted. If they've lost a loved one, what has that meant to their surviving family members? Because um, we know that it has a, it's the ripple effect, right? It, we can see the effects of MMIW for a few generations, if there hasn't been healing work done uh, and provided to those families. So one, share their stories. Two, call for the passage of VAWA and FIBSA with the tribal enhancements that tribes and NCAI has endorsed um, since both FIBSA and VAWA have expired. Um, we have NCAI resolutions on both of those bills. Um, three, I think the last thing, is really to, for families to ask for a balance between reforming federal and state and local systems that are non-native and restoring indigenous protections. <laughs> so I really wanna like, what does that mean? So the Indian Law and Order Commission report from 2013 did a really great job of saying um, local tribal responses are the way to go. They are the most sustainable solution. If we continue to look to the federal, state, and local non-native governments for solutions, we'll be there forever. They will never be able to fully meet the needs of native people in the same way that local native solutions will. So it, the, it's really a balancing act. How do we make sure that changes in laws strengthen the federal, state, and local response, which is limited because, again, it's non-native, okay, but Indians deserve um, to be, uh, they're U.S. citizens and they deserve to be protected like everybody else, not, no differential response, but they also deserve to have their, their indigenous protections available to them, which for too long has not been available. So, um, so I, I would say that. I don't know if Rose has anything more to add. 
No, I, I think you covered, I think, um, you know, because that that's sort of what I referenced in talking about VAWA um, was that personal, you know, that personal story um, and how those, you know, really brought brought it out. They, they breathed life into, you know, into what they're speaking to and people needed to hear their stories. And so that really had a huge um, impact. Um, so I, I just agree with everything that Paula just shared. Yeah, and I just wanted to share that I'm, as you were talking, Paula, it reminded me of a, a resolution that came before our general council uh, regarding some of the issues we encounter within tribal government, but it's not unlike, you know, the federal government, state government as well. They have similar types of issues. And the whole intent of the general council resolution was for program managers to be able to communicate with one another you know, within the organization and to help make improvements by learning to communicate with one another within tribal government and, you know, thinking about ways that we could build strategies to make the needed improvements. And Paula, as you were talking about, you know, the fact that, you know, we, we know about the disparities, but if we know about the disparities, so the question is, what are we doing to address them as well? Uh, part of that is our responsibility too, and I, for that reason, I, that's part of the reason that the podcast was, you know, was started was to help uh, foster this communication and information for individuals and for families as well. So there's a lot of work to go around, a lot of work to be done. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, ladies. Yeah, and I um, wonder if on that note, since we talked about historical violence and we're talking about present day cases and things that families can do and people in our communities can do with regards to being vocal or writing to our legislators, um, if we could bring up the um, one of your resources that talks about program development from the ground up, you know, something about all of the inclusiveness about the issues. Uh, as we move forward, program development must be make consistent connections between the root cause of violence and the way programs do their work. Again, this is on uh, NIWRC.org. And I wonder if uh, we can have uh, both our team and our guests uh, give some closing comments and that connects possibly to this or um, you know, your other work. Um, so one of the, the things, you know, again, thank you, Emily, um, for that comment and um, just, you know, thanking all of you, uh, Robin, Lucy, Emily, Patricia, um, and my sister at NIWRC, Paula, uh, for this podcast. Um, you know, we at NIWRC, we're very fortunate in that we have, you know, the, we have a small but mighty staff. Um, and as we continue to grow, um, you know, we're seeing some transitions and with our teams like the, um, you know, training and TA team um, who, you know, really are a big part of uh, going into tribal communities and, um, you know, visiting with the tribes to see from building from the ground up um, their, their, you know, local responses, like um, as mentioned with the ILOC report, the Indian Law and Order Commission report, you know, it's, it's the tribes who know um, and have the best, you know, knowledge in how to um, how to move forward with regards to um, addressing domestic violence and sexual assault. 
um, stalking, trafficking, uh, murdered and missing. Um, so they, they are best equipped to handle um, those, those large issues. Um, we just, you know, as advocates need to continue to advocate for those resources. Um, and we can stay connected in this work with, um, you know, several, uh, several avenues, one of them being um, Restoration Magazine. I know Patsy, as, as you all know, she carries that around and will share um, as, as we do as well. Um, so we'll might have to chip in for your medical bill for the for the for your back pain. <laughs> Should you be uh you gotta <laughs> carry those heavy restoration magazines, but um that's definitely a way for advocates to um you know to stay in, informed and and there's a lots of ways to to get engaged. Um so for example, the uh NCAI Violence Against Women Task Force meeting is coming up. That's next week. Um, October 7th. Um, so we can share registration. It's uh, free of charge. Um, I know Patricia um, and I know several other like Abigail, definitely uh, many tribal leaders from, from Washington and from across the country um, attend um, the um, NCAI um, task force meeting. So that's really an important way for advocates also to engage um, and to work with each other and to talk about the issues and, and then take it back locally, um, you know, back home. You know, th these are ways that we can, we can work as a community to address, you know, these issues. And I know Yakima, you know, also attends NCAI. So they have the, the morning caucus meetings um, that, you know, you can also attend and be a part of. And I know that comes with the registration fee. Um, so, <clears throat> but if you can, I know that the caucus meetings are also extremely important and you know Patricia is also a big part of that and I always try to go to the northwest <laughs> or to that region and and we'll we'll provide updates um, about you know about the work because as we know tribal leaders are really just they they're dealing with taxation they're dealing with the pandemic and they're dealing you know they're dealing with the host of other issues so so it's really up to us you know again thinking of that responsibility um, that we have and, and how we can amplify um, our voices, you know, collectively and really raising these issues, you know, talking about FIPSA and the importance of reauthorization, talking about VAWA reauthorization and all the tribal enhancements, um, VOCA fixes and the Not Invisible Act, Savannah's Act. Um, so, uh, so there's just a number of ways to, to really move forward and, um, you know, to have that connection. So, um, but I just, you know, really want to thank you for, for again, very honored to be here. I would, I would just add to that, um, you know, we, a part of our strategy at, as NIWRC, we have a, we have a three-pronged strategy. One is um, we have the political clarity of understanding, you know, as we talked about the, the violence against women is tied to colonization and genocide. That's, that's crystal clear. There's no, we don't need any research that we know that. Um, and we know that the path to safety is restoring that tribal sovereignty um, and strengthening those indigenous protections. So that's one. Two, um, it's important in terms of the tree that you show, the tree uh, graph that you showed. Um, we do this work by centering indigenous worldview, uh, indigenous worldview of native women um, and indigenous uh, worldview of native peoples. So that's in terms of restoring indigenous protections um, it's, it's very, that's in the center, um, that's in the root, the trunk, and the leaves. 
is very much about um, an indigenous uh, an indigenous tree uh, that you know culture is alive trees are alive culture is alive so whatever that looks like um, based on um, indigenous peoples um, what their culture is today um, is you know we don't talk about going back to you know 18, the 1800s but we talk about remembering the teachings that you had about women, respecting women. Um, so Indigenous worldview is the second strategy. And then the third is the importance of grassroots organizing, that we are stronger together. You know, I think, um, I think my tagline always when I post on social media is strong hearts united organizing for change. Um, that, that, you know, that's the spiritual part of the work, that responsibility um, that we do this no matter what. We can have disagreements with each other. We don't have to like each other. Um, it's about respecting those responsibilities and um, and those and those um, beliefs and the the strengths of the grassroots organizing. So, like you all are doing through War Cry podcast, really organizing um, your people to be active and respond and engage with policymakers. Um, anything we can do to support you in that, please count us in. So thank you again so much for having us. Thank you. And I just want to give a quick note about the website. So anything that was brought up here, like Emily said, links will be in the show notes, but the website is completely easy to navigate. Anything that they had mentioned, I just put it in their search bar and it came directly up. So it's definitely a great resource. Great. And we also want to give uh, a a few war cries, of course, to National uh, Indigenous Women's Resource Center, where you can find all their information on their website. And of course, their different trainings, one of which is tomorrow. Uh, NCAI, which is the National Congress of American Indians. Uh, it's the largest and oldest policy organization for tribes in the United States. I am a former Miss NCAI, if you didn't know that. And uh, perfect my uh, pageant wave. <laughs> um, and I also want to, you know, as a lot of us are wearing uh, orange today or acknowledging that and taking moments, uh, give a war cry to the boarding school and residential school survivors and the families as they take in information, as they keep continue learning information, and as some of those bits and pieces of survivors uh, come together. Um, that's a very emotional process. Um, and again, if at any point during uh, this session or after you need culturally appropriate uh, advocacy or support, please contact Strong Hearts Native Helpline at 1-844-7-NATIVE. Again, it's 1-844-762-8483, or you can chat online at strongheartshelpline.org. Again, we are an Indigenous-led podcast surviving under the duress of colonization and intergenerational trauma towards self-determination. I want to thank our, uh, again, I'm Emily Washings. Thank you to co-hosts Robin Pibishi, Lucy Smartlowett, and Patricia Whitefoot. Thank you again to our War Cry podcast guests, Paula, Julian, and Rose Lee Quilt. We have some credits. We want to uh, recognize that we are getting support from Native Women in Action. This is edited and produced by Robin Pibashi. Music by Lee Sekakwaptiwa. And logo and shirts by John Alney Schellenberger, 
where you can also get uh, merch that supports our podcast at Native Anthro. Chef Patchai, thank you very much. <laughs>